Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast, I have long informal conversations with researchers whose work intersects with climate in some way. It's basically my excuse to talk with researchers that uh, I would like to have a conversation with, uh, people that I, I want to know a little bit more about, and I'm hopeful that in the process, we get a little bit more information about these folks out there, and you you get a sense of who they are and uh, kind of why they became scientists and what sort of work excites them, what interests them and their perspective on not only science, but academia and uh, other things, whatever happens to come up. We've got uh, Anna Jones coming up soon, Dr. Anna Jones. She's a science leader and senior tropospheric chemist at the British Antarctic Survey. We uh, talked about uh, that kind of uh, duty of care that uh, senior scientists uh, kind of need to take on for the people that they're supervising. Uh, that was one of the things that we that we talked about, and we talked about her science work uh, in, in good detail, all of her field work. She's done a ton of field work over the years, really interesting stuff. So her work focuses on the polar atmosphere and how chemical composition is affected by reactions with snow, with sea ice, and with the ocean. And all of that is essential for predicting how the atmosphere will respond to future changes in climate and the consequent modifications to the polar environment. You know, what happens to the polar environment as a result of that, as well as assessing any feedbacks that may arise. As we talk about, um, some of these chemical interactions are really things I hadn't thought about before. I, I really learned a lot in uh, talking with, with Dr. Jones and uh, I hope that you enjoy the conversation. So we, we kind of start talking about um, life as a senior academic, which she, uh, as we described, she kind of doesn't think of herself as a senior academic, but it's in her title. And she does uh, kind of take on that, that duty of care, responsibility for looking after the, the, not only the science, but also the people that she's working with and the people that she's helping to supervise. So, uh, Something's been on my mind a little bit. I'm going to talk for a few minutes. It's okay. If you want to skip ahead, just skip to the music, and that's basically where the introduction will start. So I was talking recently with uh, a listener, with somebody who uh, does listen to some episodes of this podcast, and they mentioned that, you know, on previous episodes that we've talked about how you should be able, we hope, from this side, from the academic side, we would hope, uh, or at least I would hope, let me, maybe I won't project onto the entire field, I would hope that you could approach us, you know, individual scientists, kind of by email, kind of by Twitter, and I would hope that you wouldn't feel intimidated, because um, from where I'm sitting, we're just, we're just people, uh, and just, just kind of trying to get by in our own way, but then again, I I'm on the other side of that kind of partition, right? I don't have the perspective of what does it look like if you're if you're on the outside. Is academia kind of intimidating? Is science kind of intimidating from the other side? And I think the answer is it certainly can be. Um, does, as much as I love being a part of the community, being a part of the academic you know research community, I think it's important to appreciate that in some ways we can be a kind of exclusionary community, right? It's kind of difficult to fully participate in what we're doing unless you have funding, uh, unless you have degrees, unless you have you know, a publication record, and it's, it's hard to kind of join in. And I feel like maybe in previous episodes we didn't dig into that as much as we should have. I hope that that didn't come across as insensitive. It's uh, just perhaps a result of 
where I'm sitting, the, the perspective that I have. Maybe I don't have as good of an appreciation for, you know, what academia looks like uh, from the other side. Uh, again, because just on the inside, we're, you know, most of us, we're scrambling to get our papers out. We're scrambling to get our, our grant applications and things through. We're scrambling to keep the whole academic machine churning ahead uh, and rolling forward. But if, uh, if you're on the outside, you might not feel like there are those same opportunities. So in some ways, and again, I, I do love being part of this community. <laughs> I was thinking about how, uh, how it's kind of an emotionally dangerous community to, to really hang your, your hopes on, right? Because uh, it depends on the kind of funding coming through. It depends on you having a way to continue to kind of carry out some kind of scientific or science-relevant work to help you stay plugged into the community. And it's not that you have to have those things to participate, really. I mean, you can do research on, on your own and, and, be, and be part of it in some way, but I understand that that won't feel as plugged in, that won't feel as connected, uh, especially if you're not as able to kind of come to the meetings and be in those social circles. So th- this is something that I'm really interested in, and I, I'm interested in it because um, this, this, the research community, the oceanographic community, is important to me, and yet... Uh, I worry sometimes about like, well, what what would it look like if I wasn't able to stay in? You know, how would that feel? Would I would I still be able to kind of participate it in some way? You know, if the if the grant stuff doesn't work out, and if the um, you know job things kind of don't work out for for me individually, then can I um, can I still maintain some sense of uh, of belonging in the community, or is it sort of you know once you're uh, no longer a professional, do you kind of feel really like you're on the outside of it? And from a less selfish, more zoomed out perspective, I think science as a whole uh, benefits when we have a lot of different uh, voices, a lot of different people contributing. I mean, look at what's happened to software in the GitHub era, you know, Python. It's this massively collaborative effort that in principle anybody can contribute to, anybody can help with code development if they have the the time and the, the, the skill set and the willingness to kind of stick with it. And that kind of open, collaborative uh, effort has just produced amazing results in terms of the, the kind of toolkits that are now available to us, uh, especially kind of in the machine learning framework, that there's just been an absolute explosion of tools on GitHub and similar kind of platforms that we can use. And that's, that's all amazing. And it's uh, benefited science so much. We also have open publications, uh, preprints. We're trying to make it easier for people to access our work, even if they don't have a library that can pay for the uh, outrageous, well, I say outrageous, they are they are high, they're very large subscription charges for journals, and uh, the, the other kind of necessary infrastructure that one needs to have to interface with that world. So I think that that's a positive development, opening up science, making it more open, both for the individuals who maybe really want to feel like they're participating, but also from a zoomed out perspective of what's going to be good for science as an endeavor, as like a human effort, as like a positive human effort, (laughs) a positive human push for us to kind of all do together. Okay, so um, I'm going to stop rambling now. I, I, I'd say all that stuff not because I think I have some amazing perspective on it. It's not exactly that. I just know that in listening to other podcasts, I appreciate it when people try to articulate some of these things, even if they do or don't do a brilliant job at it. It's fine. I like to hear it. So I kind of figure, well, I'll just try to do the same thing and articulate some of the things from where I'm sitting. 
but I'm very eager to share this conversation with Dr. Anna Jones, Senior Tropospheric Chemist at the British Antarctic Survey. It's, uh, I, really, I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. I learned a lot of science. We talk about the science stuff kind of a little bit later on, so I think we start with the sort of professional perspective, and then uh, we do get to drift in and out of the, the her science work. It's all kind of interspaced together there. So without uh, any more from me, let's go ahead and get into this uh, excellent conversation. Um, excellent, because she's, uh, she's really good to talk to. I'm not giving myself a pat on the back there. I think she's really excellent to talk to. Uh, the fantastic Dr. Anna Jones. But no, that's right. It's not a, I don't go afterwards and then try to edit, you know, yeah, really yeah. focused, like, answer that's meant yeah. to capture the, the whole, you know, yeah. conversation, yeah. including um, any pauses or any, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's good. I like all of it. I like yes. all of it. Yeah. And yeah. that's the kind I like listening to, so I figure I might as well make that yeah. kind as okay. well. Um, yeah. So I, again, thanks again for, for doing this. I appreciate it. So, um, what have you kind of been up to lately? Like, what's your your week? Just what's my start, week? Just kind of start locally, you know. Start like oh. with the recent couple of days. Here. Oh, um, I submitted a funding proposal on uh, the deadline was Tuesday four o'clock. Yes. Yeah. So my deadline was Monday. Right. So it went in on Monday, and then I had the co various co eyes in different places come back and say, "Can you just change this? Can we just do?" <laughs> So actually, the final thing was was done on a Tuesday, but I mean that's been my, it, and um, yeah. So I was brought into it quite late in okay. the day, and um, we'd worked very hard for ten days, and we pulled the whole thing together and submitted it. Ten days. What kind of proposal was it? Uh, it was a directed call, one of the note directed. Okay. About uncertainties in clouds. Right. So okay. that's well, is a very specific call. It's yeah. It's not like the standard grants where <coughs> no, the standard grants you no, kind of absolutely propose some work, but with the directed no. call there, it was very very specific and it's yeah. a perfect call actually. Oh nice. And the only reason that it was running late is because um, other people that were involved in it have been other doing other. They've had field work mm. campaigns. Oh right. You know, yeah. so they've been doing field work, and then the call comes out, and then there's more field work, and then all of a sudden there's this. Oh my goodness. Mm. You know, it's too good an opportunity to miss. Yeah. So it was really important to get something in, and actually, I think what we pulled together in the end was um, was pretty good, and it was very pleasing that there was a guy involved who um, had been because of course it was half term as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So everything comes together. So, but he was away <laughs> for half term, so he saw it just before he went, mm. sent in a load of stuff. And we worked, you know, I mean, it was six in the morning till 11 at night, yeah. you know, for that week in between trying to do everything else. And um, and then when he came back, he looked at it and he said, do you know what? It's actually pretty good. So so then I was very happy. Then, you know, then it's all worthwhile. And nice. yeah, all do want, good. Do you want to talk about it? Or since it's a proposal, do you want to wait? Um, no, we can. It's not my, you know. well, okay. So I wasn't sure whether, so we're not recording this. Oh, it's on, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Yeah, so I'm not leading right. it. Yeah. It's not my proposal. Right, okay. I came yeah. in at the last minutes to salvage and to, oh, you know, I see. so. Okay. Um, so you had, you were pulling it together. I was and, pulling it together, right. yeah, and making sure that it happened. Yeah. So it's very iterative and very, like you said, you had to send it around to all the other people involved. Well. It can be, well, but all, I guess when you have a deadline. Well, you had such tight <laughs> deadline. And actually what we did, um, so somebody came in, it, it was one of these things, you know, you, you have a certain amount of money, you figured out who you're going to work with, you figured out what you're going to do, 
and it's coming together and it's looking quite good. And then somebody then, who actually I was emailing about something quite different, came along and said, I, I understand that, you know, it'd be great to be involved. And then mm. you think, okay, can we release some money? So then we release some money and then, you know, we get, so he writes some text and you think, I don't know how that text, I, I haven't got the skills to merge that text. Mm. So then you send it out to, can you just merge that? So right, you right. sort of delegate jobs to people and they would come back and they would, you know, send something, but actually it never really quite looked right. But you've really got to sort of dig deep to get these things finished. And, and for me, kind of psychologically, it was finished on Sunday night. <laughs> but then Monday morning, I realised actually that section I was not happy with. So oh, yeah. I was up at six in the morning sending emails. When you get into work, could you just look at this? And he was great. And yes, he, you know, in amongst his busy day, he made time and he said, right, I've, I've checked. It didn't flow. Some figures were in the wrong place. Now I've done it and now it's ready. And so, so then you produce something and you're happy with it. The last thing, I hate having things going in which I'm not happy with. I mean, they don't, I'm not a 150% person, but I am an 85% person. You know, it has to be at a certain standard. Um, and so we got it there in the end and um, it, was a lot of, it was a lot of work, but it was mainly, you know, we led it very tight at the end and we were just saying, yeah. can you do this and can you do that? And um, so, yeah, so you know, we'll see how it goes. That's right. Deadlines can actually be helpful, can't they? Yeah. I've heard that as a good t trick or tip for, uh, or a method. And a good uh, trick that works more than once is a method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Even for finishing papers and things. Yes. Like, even if you're a student or, you know, postdoc, yeah. you can give all your co-authors, like, give them a deadline. <laughs> Absolutely. Always, always. Never, yeah. never leave it open. Always give people a, a, a focus because also it gives an expectation for how long things should take mm -hmm. and things shouldn't go on for ages and they need to be finished. Yeah. So you just kind of agree, you know, even if you agree with yourself, it needs to be done by this time. Yeah, that's right. And if you don't make it, that's okay. It's just, but yeah. it's good to have that deadline in place that yes. you can work with. Yes. Yeah. When, when you were talking mind. about um, being up at six in the morning, I've been thinking lately about, to relate to that, about how much work I get done in these kind of, they feel kind of frantic, they feel kind of like, I, I don't want to mm. overuse the term, but they feel a, a little bit manic, where yes. I'm just like, ah, I've got to do this, I've yes. got to do this. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really, it's an interesting source of energy that I think yeah. a lot of scientists and creative people seem to have, and it's, yeah. it's interesting to think about where that comes from, yeah. and where they're like... But we, we have to kind of try to harness it yeah, the best we can. No, you're absolutely right. And personally, I don't like last minute and I don't like tight deadlines. Mm. I like to be very in control. I like to be very organised so that I've got time. I don't like, you know, really this yeah. kind of heavy pressure. It makes me feel unwell. I don't like it. Mm. Um, but if... So I do not I do not normally work, you know, at six in the morning. I'm not a six in the morning email person right. or 11 at night. That is not my style. Um I spent 14 years working part-time. I could get a lot done in part-time mm. hours. I can work very hard for a short amount of time, get a lot done, mm. no problem. So I don't need to work. That's just my personal thing. Plus I can't do it physically. So I can do it for you know a week to 10 days, I can do it. And then I'm absolutely yes. done. So let's be realistic. This is not a good way of working. <laughs> Definitely not in the long term. Yeah. So if there's, a, if there's a funding deadline, and in a way it becomes quite fun because because you don't do it all the time and everybody is kind of a little bit excited and a little bit kind of really focused and you're bouncing ideas and it is very so you're right in that way it is very productive um for a short amount of time mm -hmm. but definitely not in the long term that's right i like that you said that because it highlights 
we should be careful not to romanticize that kind of yes. energy and to not to yes. hold that up as some kind of ideal. Absolutely. And in fact, <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, when I'm asked about, you know, working hours and things like that, I am very often the one, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, I'm going to sound like a slacker. We, we have to be really realistic about the expectations from people. And I don't think it's healthy on so many different levels. You should not be working, I think, you know, these kind of, you shouldn't be working at both ends of the day. You know, mm. the day's long enough. You can get a lot done in a working day. You can really work a lot and efficiently. Mm. And late nights and early mornings is, is not something which I, um, I, I support and I definitely, yeah. you know, it's, it, when I get, because I do get emails from people, you know, some people are doing these things and I, and I, it worries me a bit because I think it is, it creates an expectation from people that they feel as though they ought to be doing this mm. and they shouldn't. Yeah, that's right. You know, they've got lives, they've got families, they've got health. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's really important to hear, you know, senior scientists like yourself say yeah. that because like you can set, I don't know if yeah. you think of yourself as a senior scientist, but it's in your job title. So Yeah, do you know <laughs> but, what? And you're right. So I don't think of myself as a senior yeah. scientist, but it is in my job title. Yeah. So and I, um, I, I feel um, kind of quite keenly duty of care responsibilities. Mm. And, you know, I think it's really important that, we set sensible expectations for people because, yeah. you know, it's in nobody's interests at all. People have to get, they have to set a happy balance. They have to enjoy their work. They have to enjoy their life outside work. Otherwise, mm. you know, we're getting things wrong. That's, that's, and if they want to do it, that's fine. But there definitely shouldn't be an expectation. I like that. That's really good. That, um, <laughs> I think, it's just I, my view. Yeah, yeah, no, no I understand. Yeah, and I think as a you know senior scientist, as a as a kind of leader, um, you know, you can set a lot of that tone, and you mm. can set the expectations mm. a bit. And so that's yeah. that's really good. And then other people can point to your example. They can. I started yeah. um, putting in my email signature a little thing that says, you know, hey, I don't expect you to work outside yes. of your working hours. Yes. Okay, sometimes I send some emails later yes. in the evening, but that's just to give me some flexibility in yeah. terms of like when I do stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not working all the time. I do no. I do take some time yeah. you know off, but um, I, I've got a, a, a young kid in school, and so yeah, exactly. sometimes I go pick him up, and that takes a bit of, out yes. of my afternoon. So yes. then I might do some emailing in the evening if yes. I feel like it, yes. only if I feel like it. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. I don't feel like I have to. It's yes. just kind of exactly. Know, <laughs> and I noticed that actually mm. on your on your um, your signature line, and it, and it's it's neat, and it's you know it's a quite a good message to send. Mm. You know, and I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. and and because you're right, because because we we're very very lucky, we do have quite you know flexible you know, job setups. And so, you know, if something comes up, and especially for people with families and kids and things, um, you know, it's it's fantastic to be able to leave early and pick your child up from school. Mm -hmm. It's lovely. You know, we'll come in late because you've dropped them off. And that's really important. And that's about getting that balance. Yes. But if that means that then, you know, you want to continue on a, on a you know, a full-time kind of um, position, you might want to make that time up later or whatever. And that's mm -hmm. your choice and that's the balance. And then that balance is good. So... It's about getting the right balance, but not expecting expecting one of these. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm smiling a little bit because I'm remembering um, back when I was in astrophysics, uh, talking with my advisor about this, mm. and I, I kind of said, "Well, I, I think I want to try to get a little bit better work-life balance because mm. I didn't have it at the time." Mm -hmm. And 
very different work culture, I have to say. Like, he, he kind of was like, I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you know, like, I don't understand oh the work-life balance. So what do yeah. you think? <laughs> right. yeah. And I think, you know, he, he came from a very different culture, but I think also other fields might be a bit more... Um, the other fields might romanticize uh, being a workaholic and yes. romanticize you know, <clears throat> being kind of, oh, I work 90 hours a week, Absolutely. which is unhealthy. Absolutely, yeah. and some people see that as a badge of honour, mm. you know, and I just don't think that it... But like I said, that's just my opinion, Yeah. Um, because I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I, I mm. genuinely couldn't, you know, physically I couldn't. Mm. Um, I would get ill. Um, so I don't, I don't think that... I just don't think it's... I don't think it's fair... I mean, people didn't put that pressure on us when, well, I don't know, maybe they did with you, but, you know, when I was younger, we didn't have that type of pressure. Mm. You know, it's it's self-imposed pressure. But, um, no, my, my, my oceanography advisor is really good. Mm. Uh, so my, I didn't, I had nothing but positive experiences there. Right. Um, and he, he's got four kids. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, yeah. he managed to balance that yeah. somehow. Well, he he does work a lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his, his wife is amazing and, yeah. <laughs> and keeps a lot of that going, absolutely. Yes. Um, but he was there. He was. He was involved. Yeah. So, you know, he, yeah, he wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't the kind. He's not the kind who just you know holds up in his office all day. Yes. You know, he's, he's around and, and that, parenting. And that's amazing. And you know, and more and more you see that people are finding that, you know, because you know but the thing is we love our jobs. I mean that's why people put a lot into it. Mm-hmm. But equally we love our families, and so we have to make sure that you know, yeah. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. So I just looked at. A list of projects on your website, and you've got a lot of them that are running now. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about whichever ones you want. I thought this—is yeah. it Sayana? Sayana. I, I thought that one sounded yeah. Sayana. I thought that one sounded interesting. Yeah. About um, shipping, looking at shipping emissions. Yes. Would you like to talk about that we one can a little bit? Do. Well, I think yeah. So we can, yeah, let's talk about Sayana. So um, okay. Should we start by saying so? I'm an atmospheric chemist, and sure. The so the, I'm involved in lots of different projects. Um, looking at different types of chemistry so we've got project looking at greenhouse gases and that's partly their sort of UK projects global projects and our input is that we have access to the Antarctic and the high southern latitudes so we can make measurements there which other people don't find so easy so that's you know something which we can contribute Sienna is, is again it's a directed call so it was a very specific proposal um, so we were um, there were a number of different topics and you could you could bid for money to carry out projects within this range of topics and the Sienna one was specifically to look at shipping okay so there's a change in the ruling through I think it's, in, in, it's an IMO International Maritime Organization driven ruling that there is going to be a reduction in the amount of sulphur in fuel in um, shipping fuel which comes into place in January 2020. Okay. So they're taking it from I think if I get the numbers it's about right they're about 3.5% to about 0.8% so it's really quite a big reduction. Mm. Is this just through uh, kind of capturing it as it's being emitted by the the engine (laughs) the engines that are driving the ships? Well that's a good question and so my understanding had been that it was going to be low sulfur fuel that would go okay. in because, but I think that it isn't. I think it is exactly that. I think it's about capturing it. Mm. So, in terms of what's coming out of the exhaust pipe, it won't make any difference. But in terms of, um, you know, what goes on further 
before that, it makes some differences in how you deal with your waste. You know, if you've captured it from, you know, your exhaust pipe, mm. how do you capture it? What do you do with your effluent? Things like that. But, so that opens up other questions. Um, but equally, I mean, if you're if you are um, taking the sulphur out of the fuel before you supply it to the ship, it, it has to be dealt with at some stage unless you can find fuel which is super high quality and is low sulfur but that doesn't tend to get used for shipping so why are we interested in sulfur okay so yeah. that's what i was going to come on to yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um so if you put sulfur into the atmosphere it will um affect the formation of particles so we talk about aerosol particles mm -hmm. which are just um people hear about them now actually you hear about pm 10 and pm 2.5 so we're familiar with the fact that there are little tiny little particles little little droplets or, or solid particles and you know they're in the atmosphere we hear about them because we worry about how we breathe them you know we've heard about aerosol particles particulates from diesel cars so this so you get lots of these different types of aerosol and you know aerosol is just the name that we you know is given to them and sulfur um, chemistry in the atmosphere can affect the um, the number of these aerosol particles and also how big they are so they can they can grow different sizes if you if you condense sulfur onto them or you can form new particles through sulfur chemistry. So so the, if you put sulfur compounds into the atmosphere, you will affect the amount of aerosol. There's physical and chemical reactions that yes. change the aerosol concentration. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and the composition of them as well. Mm. And these aerosol particles are important because they affect the formation of clouds. So this actually does link to the proposal which we just submitted. Mm -hmm. So if you um, affect the, if you put things into the atmosphere which affect the way clouds form, you can affect both the number of clouds, but you can also affect um, cloud properties. So you can, if, if you have, for example, a large number of large cloud droplets, they behave different, differently in the atmosphere to if you have a, a small, sorry, a large number of small cloud droplets if you have small cloud droplets they're more white if you if you so they have a higher what's called albedo so the sun will shine down it'll interact with the cloud if it's very white some of that cloud will be radiated back out to space yeah. again yeah, yeah. so um yeah, yeah so right. the cloud albedo is affected by the aerosol in the atmosphere so there is this whole kind of um thing about how the sulfur in the atmosphere is changing as a result of these changes to the shipping lanes and if you look at um well, just real quick and, and yeah. albedo can affect climate exactly it, yeah, sorry can, absolutely yes yeah, it's uh you know you wear a white shirt on a hot day yes. on a hot bright day because yeah. it makes you more reflective yes. and so you absorb less sunlight exactly. and, and stay cooler yeah 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 okay. absolutely so there's a, a fascinating you know connection all the way through there yes. from sulfur emissions yes. to aerosols to cloud yeah. droplets yeah. cloud distribution properties yes. to albedo to climate exactly yeah, whole connection. yeah absolutely whole chain. yeah and um you know if you look on satellites um imagery of um effectively clouds you can see shipping lanes for example because of the effect that they're having on forming you know, oh wow! You know the the, the particles in the huh. in the atmosphere. They leave leave marks. They they leave trails. Yeah. You can see. Yeah, oh, wow. you can see the major shipping lines. So, um, so the Siena project is is both driven, or this core was both driven by the fact that there's going to be this reduction in sulphur, but also we've we've put it in the context of um, the high latitude in the Arctic and 
changes in shipping routes, potential changes in shipping routes mm -hmm. in the Arctic. Because again, as sea ice, you know, as planet warms and we have a reduction in sea ice, you're opening up shipping lanes yeah. Yeah. Um, in places where there haven't been shipped before. Yeah. So it's shocking in the Arctic, the drop yeah. over the past few decades. Yeah. It's just linear, just yes. just right down. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Something about 40% or so, isn't it, that in the last sounds right. since the satellite yeah. record started. So I, I remember seeing a talk in the early 2000s where somebody, um, it was a mm. CNN journalist who yeah. um, gave a talk about how, um, oh, this is going to open up a whole new realm of geopolitics, like oh. global warming is going to melt yeah. Arctic sea ice, mm. open up shipping lanes, yeah. and open up a whole new geo geopolitical arena, and we're mm -hmm. starting to see that. Yeah. Um, we don't have to go down a geopolitics thread, yeah. but uh, but yeah, sorry, so back to the project. Yeah, so you're right. saying that yeah. now, uh, where does, so where does Sianna, I'm probably saying, I keep saying it wrong. Well, it, you know, you can, it doesn't really Sianna, matter. Sianna, it doesn't really have a fixed pronunciation. It's, an amazed, it's a made up word, so you can do it how you yeah. like. Okay. Um, so, so the idea from that was really, in effect, to establish a baseline of the aerosol um, composition also along, you know, in the in the high Arctic in areas which are going to be subject to more ships. Right. Um, so we might see, mm. because if you if you're going to look in this, it's really important to get a baseline. Whenever anything's going to change, yeah. you need to have your baseline. If yeah. you've got your baseline, you don't know how things have changed. You know, what was it like before? I don't know because we didn't make any measurements. Right. You know. Yeah. So we want to make the make the measurements now to say, this is what's in the Arctic now. So that as you know, you know, if the anticipated changes in shipping happen, um, we can say, well, do you know what? We know it's increased by X percent because when we made our measurements back in 20, whatever it is now, 2018, 19, we can tell you how many aerosol mm -hmm. there were. So that's partly what we're trying to do. It almost sounds like a kind of, like you said, a baseline for a monitoring system mm. to see if everyone's uh, doing what they said they were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> to an extent, yeah, yeah, to see if okay, are the sulfur overall emissions mm -hmm. really going down? Yes, and I guess you will know something about the number of ships because I can yes. imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's both of those are important, right? The yeah. emissions from individual ships yeah. and then the total number of ships that you have yeah. that'll determine how much sulfur is put yes. into the atmosphere up in the Arctic. Yes, absolutely, right. and you know, I'm not an expert on ships, but. Um, my understanding is that you know different ships will burn different types of fuel oil, and therefore you might expect different types of emissions from them. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so we want to to establish that baseline, and so we're going to have um, there are a number of different facets to the project. One is that we are setting up. I'm saying we. I'm not actually involved in that part of the project, but we've got a, a range of. Um, collaborators. I'm not leading it either. It's led by Zongbo Shi from Birmingham University, mm. and it involves um, people from Cranfield University, uh, Exeter University, and a project partner. A number of project partners. One in particular from Barcelona. So it's it's a nice kind of international project as well, which is also great. It's also worth saying that science is very international, which is a very good thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we are putting some measurements into sort of strategically chosen locations to try and get this baseline and they've um two of the people on the project have just been up to the faroe islands um which are between um, scotland and iceland yeah and they are these like ground-based measurement yes, stations they yes. would be like permanent well you know a yes. fixed location kind exactly. of measurement stations yes okay. so they will measure um 
various aerosol parameters. And, you know, what's nice about that, they're working with, um, there are, um, I don't remember the name for it, but some sort of, um, I guess, equivalent of a government department within the Faroe Islands, they are doing some monitoring already. So they, they do have some equipment making some air quality measurements. And we are going to, you know, so these other measurements are going in with their instruments, they're using their facilities. Mm. And it's just, in a sense, it's expanding their their facility. Nice. And then and then the instrument should stay for a number of years. Are they, um, are all the planned measurements kind of at, well, roughly sea level? Or are there plans to get measurements throughout the kind of air column? Yeah, the, that's a good the, question. No, the, the, the long-term measurements are all at ground-based. And what we're doing, we're also going to have a couple of um, ship cruises. So we, but we don't have aircraft. Mm. Yeah. No, it's always a thing when you have these projects, you know, you, you, you have to build up your wish list, you know, you'll mm-hmm. know, and you start with what you really, really want, and you, you end up, you know, your lowest on your list is what would be great to have, and then you see how much money you've got. And... Sounds like a good application for the FAM aircraft that yeah. operates, but I imagine it's pretty heavily subscribed. Yes, yeah. yeah. I know they're doing a lot for the Exis project, the yes. North Atlantic Climate Project at yes. the moment. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Maybe we need another. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing. I mean, we, you know, we do these projects and we get our, you know, we always acknowledge we're not going to solve everything, mm-hmm. you know. So we, we set the the starting point, you know, we, we get that building block, we understand that. And then we say, okay, what's, what are the next questions yeah. and what can we then move on to? Yeah, I would imagine just <coughs> guessing that the distribution of sulfur, you know, in the vertical directions, yes. that's going to matter too yeah. in terms yeah. of oh, it'll affect Absolutely. different clouds differently depending yeah. on where it settles. I know, yeah. it's true. And we've got modelling work involved in this as well. Yeah. Um, and that will produce some of the sort of the more three-dimensional aspects. Yeah, you can constrain it or validate the model based on, well, we know what the ground distribution is yeah. and we know a lot about the atmosphere because <laughs> yeah. we know, we know the, yeah. a lot about the dynamics of how the atmosphere works. Yes. Um, so you can connect those two bits of information yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, yes. true. Well, that sounds like so. That's a, a baseline for emissions. I also noticed yeah. there was something described on the website just as fugitive emissions. That was kind of how it was oh, listed gosh, on yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that sound possibly related? <laughs> um, but that's that's from. Um, so that's a different project again. Yes. Yes. So this is something. Um, looking at emissions of methane from North Sea oil and gas installations. Right, okay. So Michelle Kane involved with that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is she she involved in that one? No, Michelle's not in that one. She's in the the other methane project that I'm doing. She's involved in the Moya project. Moya, okay, yeah. Yeah. I talked to her here, yeah. Oh, right, okay, yeah. We had a good conversation. Uh Yeah, Yeah, very good. So fugitive methane emissions. Yes, yeah. So, So this is... It's great, actually, because you're picking up my non-Antarctic um, projects here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that project does involve the um, aircraft studies. And this is something... I mean, it's this is a nice project, I think, in that it has a very clear link to industry. And there's more and more of a sort of a move towards doing this. Um, which is a good thing. Some of the work that we've been involved with, Sienna, for example, you know, it's a, it's got implications. We're working at things. It's, it's an, in a sense, it's an industrially kind of driven project. 
but we ourselves don't yet have direct links to the shipping industry. Yes, that's right. But it's something which we need to establish. Um, Sienna only started this year, so we're in the early stages with it. And we've made contact with somebody who works in um, London, who has got links to the shipping industry. And we've said, we need to meet and talk about how we're going to develop this and you know how we develop these kind of links. And it is something which within, when we apply for funding, you know, as you know, it's important to demonstrate how, it, you know, you demonstrate impact. You sort of say, this is the work I'm going to do and this is what difference it's going to make. So that's partly why it's important. Um, and for Sienna, we, we need to establish links to the shipping industry. We have a route to do it. We haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other project actually was almost industry driven. So there is a group uh, see if I can get it right, but there's a group in the United States called the Environmental Defence Fund and they have um, links with industry and academia. And the idea basically is that you have people who drill for methane and you have scientists that worry about methane in the atmosphere and the people that drill for methane are aware or might worry about losing methane into the atmosphere and that affects their profit margins, for example. Scientists worry about it from the climate point of view. So the industrial, the people working in industry might not want to lose their methane and we don't want it in the atmosphere. So we can work together and we can say, do you know what? Actually, we can fly around your rig and we can tell you there's no methane coming out. So that's good. You're happy. We're happy. Or we can fly around your rig and we can say there is methane coming out. Now, that's not good for you and it's not good for us. So we can help you identify these sorts of things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not an expert in oil and gas drilling and industry, and I do understand that sometimes methane is, sometimes it's it's vented mm-hmm. because, or it's lost if, um, for, for certain, you know, industrial technical reasons, like I said, this is not my area yeah. of expertise. So one of the things that we were trying to do is develop a method to do this kind of work, and that's really what we're doing. They've done projects like this in the Gulf of Mexico and there's a lot of oil and gas exploration and work there Um, and really they they want to target different um, areas of um, gas exploration around the world. Our area is the Southern North Sea but we might move and look at other areas of the North Sea but it's it's really about what's the best method and it's quite complicated because so we have, we have an aircraft, we're using the Bass aircraft, which is a great aircraft because it can fly quite slow. The Twin Otters? The Twin Otter yeah. aircraft, yeah. It can fly quite low over the water mm-hmm. and it can fly quite slow. So you can, you're not, if you, if there is a plume of methane, you're not through it in a second, mm-hmm. you know, right. you, you can spend, you know, two or three seconds. So you know that it's there. Yeah. And if you, um, you might want to take samples of that air for analysis for other compounds as well, which is one of, I can tell you about that in just a minute. <laughs> so you, you want to be able to fly fairly slowly. Um, but then do you fly upwind and then downwind at different altitudes? Do you mm-hmm. fly a box around it? And what you also need to take into account is the weather because the structure of the boundary layer has a huge effect on right. What you're measuring yeah. and where it goes. And you may or may not want to be flying in the boundary. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. And and what's 
you know, one of the challenges for this work has been things like you get your aircraft for, um, you know, say two weeks. If the weather is not sort of conducive to what you want to do, you know, if, if the cloud doesn't allow you to fly, if the cloud base is too low, so you've not got enough visibility, there are various safety aspects, especially if you're flying in the Southern North Sea, it's a very busy area. Mm. So um, you have to you have to have the right conditions for flying but you also have to be very aware of how the atmosphere is behaving and make the right measurements so you can take that into account in your studies. So we did some flying a year ago and actually what we ended up doing, we were flying at a time when there was this really stable high pressure system. So there were really complicated structure in the boundary layer, you know, and you'd have a residual boundary layer from the day before and from the day before, you know, and the day mm. before. And you get these really complicated layers in the atmosphere. Mm. And if you didn't really well characterize your atmosphere, you couldn't work out what the emissions were and where it was going. Mm. So so you that was the distribution of methane, but it was hard to it ca calculate any like, oh, this is where it came from. And yes. this is the right, right. Yeah, and hard to quantify. And if you want to derive fluxes, you know, which is really the idea, then that becomes quite complicated. Mm -hmm. So we learned that lesson from last year. And this year, there's been more of a focus on doing vertical profiles. So you really characterize the structure of the atmosphere. So you, um, you know what it's what it's looking like, and you can take that into account in your calculations. Mm -hmm. So the the flying campaigns were just after Easter. Um, it's one of the reasons that we ran late with this other proposal because we had, you know, these flying campaigns and that's a really, you know, full, full time commitment. Yeah, Alex Archibald, um, I talked with him as well and okay. he, he told us a little bit about some of the hoops that you have to jump through in terms of, you know, getting permission to land in different places yeah. and getting the stuff that you wouldn't think would derail you, but that could yes. potentially, yes. if you don't jump through all the right administrative hoops Absolutely. in the right order with the right time, then yes. yeah, it could ground your, ground your plane yes. and yeah. stop you from taking measurements. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. it's true. So, and also it's just very time consuming because you know, you've got to have your flight meeting at the start of the day, your flight planning meeting, mm -hmm. make, and you've got to get your, your weather forecast. You've got to make sure that, you know, the wind is, is going in the direction that it was when you planned your route and if it isn't then you need to have a backup plan hmm. and then you go and do your flying and it's a five or you know about a five hour flight um hmm. and then and then you've got to you know sort yourself out at the end of the day so it's a very long day and it's very sort of intensive hmm. period you've got to download your data maybe take first looks at the data at the end of the day hmm. so then make sure that the instruments are working and so it's very again that's a very sort of intensive yeah period so the the capture or you mentioned you know looking for fugitive emissions the method yeah. involved everything from planning the kind of flight routes yes. all the way to well what kind of an, kind of analysis do you then do exactly and how do you then turn that into something that would be useful for you know you and the industry folks yes how do you give them some output that they can yes you know, do something with yes yes and how do you demonstrate that your method's working and so we, we sort of there's a there's a balance between um, I think they would quite like us to give them a number. This is what emissions are like from, mm. but we can't do that with just a couple of weeks flying. You know, it takes a lot more, um, you know, to realistically um, say what the emissions are. But certainly we've made good progress in developing the methods. And what I was saying, okay, so I'm, I've got two things I wanted to mention there. Yeah. Um, so one is that we, so we measure methane and we have an instrument that measures at very, very high 
temporal resolution. It makes very fast measurements. So less than one a second is about 10 a second. Mm. And um, it's quite interesting if you compare, well, it's interesting for us, if you compare mm-hmm. instruments that measure with different time periods, you can have one that measures slower and it looks as though there's a single plume. But if you measure with the really high frequency instrument, you can see two plumes. And then you can find, actually, they're coming from different places. So mm-hmm. there's a, quite a lot of subtleties in there as well. And if you're clever and you pinpoint where your plume is, you can actually fly around again if you have enough time. And you can sample within that plume. And you what, So there are two groups. There's University of York and the Univ- Royal Holloway University of London. At York, they fill metal flasks with air and they then analyze them back in their labs their instruments are really you know quite big and complicated you couldn't put them on an air on a, certainly not on our aircraft mm. and they will use it's a so and i think they're using a gas chromatography instrument and they will measure lots of different hydrocarbons and you can use that to fingerprint um your the, the plume and to see that will tell you something about where it's coming from and at Royal Holloway, they'll look at isotopes of carbon. And that will also tell you something about um, whether it's, well, they, they can tell you, for example, whether it's an agricultural plume or whether it's coming from um, from these emissions from industry. Hmm. And Michelle Kane, who you mentioned before, there was some work, maybe, maybe she even mentioned it. She was involved in some work similar to this, I think on a farm aircraft, actually. And they measured methane over the North Sea, but her work showed that actually it came from agriculture. It mm. wasn't from emissions from industry, which is what you would, in, you know, your kind of, you know, immediate knee jerk is, oh, well, it's a local thing, but actually it was coming from from agriculture on land. So, yeah. yeah so it had just been evicted, you know, yeah. carried by the wind yeah. to, that, to that site. Yes. Yeah, local yeah. and non-local. Yes. Because the yeah. atmosphere mixes things. Exactly. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it's always important to look at, you know, the complexities and, um, yeah, often the answers are not as simple as we would like them to be. That, I like your point about the time frequency, you know, how mm. often you take the measurements. And there's a word for that, uh, the... Sometimes people talk about that as aliasing, you know, like you're, right. when you change the frequency of your observation, it changes the picture that you're looking okay. at, you know, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, um, there's a, the, 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 I guess the psychological analogy is, you know, when you look at a fan spinning or a wheel that's turning, you know, yeah. sometimes it starts to look like it's going the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, it has been aliased because you're, I guess you're, I'm not an expert in this, but I guess your brain it has a certain refresh rate as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure mine does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a really yeah. interesting kind of general mathematical problem. Yes. And I guess in general, more frequent observations is better because you can then yeah. you know, get, get more higher time resolution, but then you yes. have more data to work exactly. with. And it, that's the trade-off. It, it, exactly. And I think it depends what you're, what you're looking for. And aircraft measurements, you need high temporal resolution because things, well, <laughs> she says, okay, I'll tell you in a minute where, one place where you don't. But um, if you're looking for small scale features and quick changes, you need high temporal yeah. resolution. I mean... But you can learn a lot also from, um, I mean, for example, in, I was going to say in Antarctica, but certainly, I mean, around the world, you can, there are, there's a fantastic network of um, measurements of greenhouse gases, for example, which is led from the United States. And there are flasks, these metal flasks, actually they're glass, but you fill flasks full of air and you analyse the air in your laboratory and they take flask measurements every 
um, sometimes even every two weeks. Mm. But if you go back long enough, it gives you a trend. And if that's what you're looking for, you can get that from a low temporal resolution measurement. It, it, so it really a depends trend, yeah. what exactly. So it does depend what you're looking for. Mm. Yeah, that you need a temporal resolution that matches the time scale of whatever phenomena it is exactly. that you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so you have to match them up in a nice way. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's that's a general mathematical you know, problem because you do that with models as well. You know, yes. How frequently yes. do you need to output your yep. data? Absolutely. Well, if you're looking at a centennial scale change, yeah. then maybe once a decade is yeah. okay. No, but, absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I wrote down other projects. Why don't I let you pick? Okay. <laughs> well, actually, the other one I was you going know. to mention because yeah, yeah. Uh, just Please in do. terms of, you know, I, I said that you don't, you need high temporal resolution from aircraft, but actually you don't always. So I'll just explain what I meant by that. And it also goes back to what we were talking about before about um, the hoops you have to go through to get mm -hmm. permissions to use an aircraft. So part of the, the Moya project, which is this global methane project, one aspect for BAS was, so our aircraft fly, our twin auto aircraft are serviced each year in Canada, and then they fly to Antarctica to do the field measurements in the Antarctic summer. So Canada, that's just where the people who know how to work yeah. on them, yeah, that's exactly. where they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to, so get, the you have, you have to in, get the planes to Canada. Yes, so they're, mm. they're in Calgary, so mm. they fly north-south, north-south. So they sort of fly over South America. They don't exactly fly over South America. They sort of sometimes fly around South America, but they can, they're in the right area. So um, it was suggested to us that we might do some measurements over South America. And one of the things within the methane project is to look at emissions from wetlands. So wetlands can be a very important source of methane and there are large areas of wetlands in South America. There are studies over Amazonian uh, wetlands and the Brazilian wetlands, the Pantanal, which is a huge, huge area. But nobody had looked at the, um, the wetlands of Bolivia so there's this area called the Janos de Mojos um, in northern Bolivia, and it's, you know, hundreds of miles, and it's what you call seasonally inundated, so it floods each year. And there was a kind of a, you know, a kind of a guess, you know, there was likely to be methane coming from this, and it's a large area, so it could be quite important. Mm. Um, and so could we do some measurements looking at it? And so, so, you know, our first point is, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's have a look and see what we can do. And then you think about what instruments you can use. And we have an instrument that we would be suitable for that. So, okay, we can do that. And then you think, how do you get the flight permissions? And I must say, so that project started a few years ago. And at that time, what we heard from people is, you'll never get the flight permissions. Yeah. It'll never happen. Yeah. Just various countries just yeah. aren't interested in having a, a yes. science aircraft. And, and actually, why should they be? You know? <laughs> I mean, it's almost this kind of um, arrogant colonialism. Oh, I'm sure we can go and make our measurements anywhere we want to. You know, why earth would we? You know, what would we say if, if you know, Bolivian research wanted to do flights over the UK? I think the UK might have something to say about that. You know, so... so um, Anyway, <laughs> but we, we asked, and um, there are people at BAS in the air unit who are really amazing, really amazing at understanding how you can you know, work with the local um, aviation authorities and the governments and, and 
you know, explain to them what we're doing and that what we're doing, it's a global study. There just has, happens to be an interesting area in their backyard. And, you know, what would they think if we came and had a look? And we work also with a Brazilian researcher. There's somebody else there who's doing air um, measurements. And he was really helpful and really supportive. So between us, we set up this collaborative project. And the permissions were... We wanted to do the flights in 2018 and we, well, we, the air unit here, worked really hard at getting the permissions and, you know, all of the kind of the diplomatic routes that they had didn't come, didn't come, didn't come. And in the end, we, we said, okay, we, in order to, to do a project like this, you got to get the scientists to Bolivia, you got to transport your instruments. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things that you have to do. And it's, it, it's always better to do things with sufficient time. We don't have spare money, that's the other thing. So, you know, if we'd bought a flight ticket and then he couldn't go, okay, <clears throat> we could have bought, you know, we could have bought a more expensive one and got a, you know, a refund, whatever. Mm. But there comes a point where you say, I, I think that with the risk of the project now is sufficiently high, we're going to call it off for this year. And then what happened? We got the flight permissions the day before the flights were due to happen. <laughs> so that was, but that was quite interesting because what it told us was, it is possible to get them. Yes. And the following year, so 2019 was the last chance for us to do that work. So we we kind of took the pragmatic, strategic um, decision to say, okay. We got permissions last year, therefore there's a good chance we're going to get them this year. This is the last year that we've got that we're able to do it because the money for the project, the project finishes fairly soon. Mm, right. It's this year or never, so let's go for it and let's mm. let's have a go. So the instruments were sent south, the scientist was all booked in, went south, and we got the flight permissions in time. Ooh, Hooray! Nice, yeah. The and it came together such so nicely. So the Bolivian scientist who was based in um, La Paz came across with one of his researchers. They did some ground-based sampling for us. We, um, we did the aircraft measurements. Oh, great. It's, so it's, it's just such a nice project on so many different levels. It's good diplomatically, collaboratively, scientifically. It's a really, hmm. you know, solid exemplar, I think, of how to do quite challenging research, but um, it's very nice, inclusive project. Um, and we've got, at the first look at the at the methane data, I have a big smile on my face now because it looks really, really good. There was an equivalent study done over the wetlands of um, northern Scandinavia some years ago. So we knew what kind of signal we were looking for. But the beauty, sorry, I'm quite enthusiastic about this project. No, one, of the, yeah. <laughs> one of the beauties of this project is that the, the wind direction is fairly reliable because you've got mm. the Andes. So you have this great big mm. mountain chain to um, to the west, so it basically channels the air. The air is going to go north south. Yeah. So you can set your flight. You're fairly sure that that's where the air is going to go. Wow. You need to fly into and against the wind, mm. um, and then with the wind in order to make the kind of measurements that you want to get. So everything was, mm. you know, behaved beautifully, and the data look exactly as they should. So they're not worked up yet, we haven't derived a flux. And it's, you know, we had a very, very limited number of days to do this kind right, of work. Right. But also what we've done now, we've demonstrated that it's possible. 
And so, you know, we can start thinking, it's what we were talking about before, that, you know, you do the first stage, um, you know, can we do anything? If we do something, what do we find? Do we find what we think we might find? And once you've proven all of that, then you can go back and, you know, try and get some more money and, and maybe go back and do it a bit more and, you know, yeah. expand. And so it was a it was a really fantastic project. I was really pleased with the way that went. You gave me a sense that for something like that to work, the individual relationships are really important. Mm. You know, the relationships between, you know, the scientists here and the scientists you know, yeah. in the remote country, mm. the you know, people, the relationship between uh, on the diplomatic level, like you said, the folks mm. here at Bass who yeah. know how to talk to them, they have relationships <clears throat> with, yeah. you know, the right people yes. in South America, they know how yes. to get the flight permissions, and yes. they know how to, so yeah, the, that network is really crucial, yeah, that network of people. Yeah. yeah, and I think especially if you're working in a foreign country, because a lot of this is based on trust as well, mm-hmm. you know, that we're not going to, you know, you know abuse their, their, good, their good faith, mm-hmm. and, you know, we are only going to do what we said, we will use our results in the way that we've said it, you know. Mm-hmm. We're, so I, I do think that that's, that's very important. It's critical, yeah. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, working with, you know, the scientists out there, you know, we our budget for this project was much higher than you know than they didn't have money on this project but we were able to invite them to the place where the, the measurements were made was a place called trinidad mm-hmm. um trinidad bolivia so we pay for their flights to come to trinidad and for their accommodation there and you know it's it's very much you know working together and they helped us a lot for um for getting the flight permissions but the other thing that they bring is local knowledge. You know, they understand Bolivia. You know, they know how Bolivia works. They know the Bolivian, um, you know, the seasonality of the rain. They know how the, the wetlands behave. So they bring absolutely critical stuff to this for us to understand the wider context. Yeah, definitely. Do we, do we know much about how uh, future emissions from of methane from wetlands mm. could change because you know methane's yeah. a really powerful greenhouse gas on yes. short kind of ten year time scales. Yes, and um, I don't have. A, I imagine that is in some of the climate models. I think that you know yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the more recent generations have started to include yeah. some land processes yeah. like that. There are models that look at it, and actually that was that was that was the reason. I mean, that's one of the reasons behind the project. So methane is, you know, it's an interesting molecule, and um, the concentrations vary in ways that we don't completely understand Mm -hmm. so if you go way back in time if you look at the ice core records you know you've got your 800,000 year ice core records you can see how methane changes and we know that we've got there's about um, 225% more methane in the atmosphere now than we have done at any time in the previous 800,000 years so so we we really have you know distorted methane a lot Um, and then if you look at the more recent record, methane was had relatively, I mean, the concentrations have come up, but then they'd basically plateaued. Then in 2007, they went up again, and then they, they sort of went up relatively gradually. And then in 2014, they really went up a lot. So there is this big rise in methane. And actually, we don't know where this is coming from. Um, I talked before about this network of flask sampling that's done around the world. And they measure methane from these flask samples as well. And that gives you a kind of a global picture of how methane is changing. And you can see that a lot of this change seems to be driven in the tropics. Hmm. The other thing that 
that we know is that is by looking at the isotopes, which I talked about before, there's a shift in the isotopes towards what you would expect if it's a biogenic and natural source. So there are various hypotheses, but one of them is that there's been a change in the wetland emissions, and that could have come from Africa, could have come from South America. Hmm. And although this is a natural source, what's driving that natural source you know it has there been a change in for example the amount of rainfall in these areas driven by changes in climate Mm -hmm. which is then giving you you know larger wetland areas or extending the wetland season so although we you know we we think about it you know wetlands is a natural it's a natural thing we have wetlands naturally yes but is there something else behind it which is exacerbating their role as a as a methane source, so that's why it's it's really important to start um, looking at um, you know these methane emissions and try to pin you know get some numbers to go into these models. Mm. And like I said, you know these these place the tropics and the the very few measurements um, long term measurements in the tropics. You know, and that sort of makes sense. <coughs> you know, we we're lucky in in. You know where 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 we live and where we operate. We have much more money. You know we have, we just have fewer things to worry about. Mm. We have a lot more money that we can put into research. So mm. we have a lot of measurements and we have a lot of money. Whereas in the tropics, they have many other things to worry about, um, and they don't have money to invest in scientific infrastructure, and there is not a huge amount of measurement infrastructure or measurements being made there. So we are, it, this, this global methane project is, has been making measurements, looking specifically at fluxes from wetlands in, in Africa and, um, and over South America. And that, you know, the idea is to feed into the models and then see what effect these might have and, you know, how much can we understand the changes in the, in the sources. That project's coming to an end and you know, so we're we're slightly worried because um, if we don't have any more funding to to continue this work, you know, we'll get we will get to that certain point, and then we will we will stop, and we won't know more. And the methane problem is really quite critical because, like you said, you know, it's a really important greenhouse gas, and the you know the <clears throat> the mitigation strategies that are discussed and the Paris Agreement and the models are based. There's an assumption in there on what methane is going to do, and if methane doesn't do that, then all of mm. these other assumptions are wrong. So, right. so it is quite important to, you know, to understand what's, um, you know, what's going on with methane. Like you said, for the sulfur work, you need a baseline. So yeah. You need that kind of yeah. constant measurement of what's actually happening and how it changes, so yes. that you yes. know how it will connect to the rest of the climate system. Yeah, and and also, you know, it's changing. Well. We know that it's changing from the measurements that we've made, but how is it going to change over the next five years? You know, we, we really do, you know, the next five, 10, 15 years or so is really quite critical in terms of, uh, you know, mm. what we're doing with greenhouse gases. So if we have a system here, you know, I mean, not to over-dramatise it, but, you know, we, we worry about tipping points and feedbacks and things like that. And if we, if we have a source which has been triggered... Um, you know, and it's it's dri- driven by changes in the climate that are already happening. Then that is something that we need to, you know, really take into account and take quite seriously. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, what, what this conversation makes me think of, um, where we've come to right now, mm. I'm trying to remember where, uh, who said it, but uh, a couple of days ago on Twitter, someone, there was a scientist who, uh, she said, uh, whispering, mm. she said, you know, climate change is scary, but sometimes climate science is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so, that's right on the, the, yeah. the nose. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I think sometimes when you tell folks out in the world, you know, that you do a climate-related kind of science, yeah. they think of the scary climate change picture, and we and we mm. do as well. That's yeah. certainly part of it, yeah. but there, it's it's undeniable that like the work of you know, the measurements and the understanding and the modeling. Mm. Um, I mean, we we want to do that in part because it's important, but mm. in part because we enjoy it. And there's that. You know, there, there's that we we feel plugged into it in some way. We've, yeah, it's yeah. Kind of like how meteorologists get really excited about a hurricane, even though the hurricane's kind yeah. of it is you know bad, yeah. but it's an exciting, it's a big meteorological event yeah. that deserves attention. Yes, it's true. <laughs> Do you know what? I actually I get more excited about small scale things which probably don't matter so much. <laughs> um, you know, and these ones, um, you know, the large scale things. I think, I think you get excited. I actually think you get excited when you get into the detail, but when you step back and you look at the bigger picture, you know, actually, you know, I, I do, you know, worry about, you know, these sorts of things and, and how they're, how they're changing and quite what's yeah. going to happen. No, I think that's right. Small scale, it can look really interesting about Absolutely. like, oh, there's yeah, a yeah. balance of mechanisms yeah, yeah. and oh, how yeah. are those two yes. mechanisms? They're competing yes. with each other and who's yes. going to win in this competition yes. between yeah. these mechanisms? That's, Absolutely, that can yeah. be really fun. Yeah. But then, yeah, like you said, you zoom out and you go, yeah, oh, oh my no. goodness, that's not, that's not looking good, is it? No, uh, 2100, yeah. Uh, yeah, CO2 higher than it has been in a very, very long time. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's yeah. the other thing, you know, the measurements that we make in um, I make a joke about it actually, well I make a joke about lots of things, but I'm, I make a joke about, you know, I give a, a number of, or quite a lot of um, outreach talks, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I show is um, how CO2 and methane have changed through time. Yes. And I kind of make a joke that every so often I have to replot my diagrams in order to get, you know, I, the scales have to change because the concentrations are going up so much, mm -hmm. you know, and I have, <laughs> have to extend my axes to make them fit. You know, anything. Yeah. Oh, come on! This is this is not good. This is no. It also makes me think about how uh, I've seen some people report their birth years as a uh, PPM PPM oh, of CO two because yeah. now it's a there's a <laughs> you can invert that relationship now yes. because it's just been going up and yeah. up and up and yeah um, and you can track that to you know when you were born yes uh, which is depressing it is and I mean <laughs> and there are websites which you can look on and it shows you CO two emissions and you just see these numbers ticking over. Yeah, that's true. Bigger and bigger and bigger. So. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, that's way too big of a picture for us to fully engage with I know. You know, here here in the room. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Um, I, I feel kind of like I'm cheating in some ways because in, in working on just you know, the oceanography of it, I get mm. to think about the interesting part of it, and I, I don't have to fully engage, if I don't want to, with the political reality of it. There are folks who are on those front lines yeah. who are like fighting yeah. those battles. I really Absolutely. respect that. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot. Yeah. It takes a lot of... Um, reserve and yeah. determination. I know, absolutely. But it needs people at all stages, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, you need people who can provide the really robust evidence and the really robust understanding. Because, I mean, it's it's all very complex. You know, it's, you know, we can talk about changes in climates, you know, in quite simplistic ways, but actually what's behind it is really complicated and, you know, complex and subtle. And, you know, you need to understand yeah. all of that in order for all of the, you know, the, the, the broader ways of presenting things for that to actually be robust. 
That's right. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> one analogy you hear sometimes is that well, the climate change and climate in general is like a jigsaw puzzle, mm. and we have the big pieces yeah. yes. pretty much in place. We understand yeah. the big pieces, but yeah. it's not. We don't have every single piece filled yeah. in in the right place, yeah. and it's and those details can matter. So yes. we need to keep working on them I and know. keep figuring it out. I know, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't I? Um, I wanted to give you a pick because you were involved with so many things that I don't think we can actually get no. to all of them. <laughs> and we don't have to. There's no need no. to like march through all of them. But I just no. thought I would see if uh, any of these there's the Kess lab yeah, at Halley yeah. there's Sonata which you're involved with there's yeah. the uh, sea salt aerosol climate impact all of those sound yeah, interesting I know. why don't I let you pick well, which one of these do you want to <clears> talk well, about I mean maybe I should just say because nobody else probably will talk a little bit about the work that we do in Antarctica and um, so we have our a laboratory there that's the cast lab which is the clean air sector laboratory mm. i can tell you just a little bit sure. about that if you want so it's down at halley it's down, down at halley antarctic it, the antarctic base it's my baby because mm. i designed it Ooh. a long cool. time ago mm. uh so yeah we did the design and build actually about the same time as my baby was born so. oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, up together, they have they have one is lasting better than the other <laughs> and uh, my son is lasting better than the cast dog okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is that way around um yeah so we we realized so we wanted to do work this is going back quite a long time but we wanted to do some work looking at the the, the antarctic atmosphere um and it was partly because we were working with people with looking at ice cores. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that ice cores gives you is information on how various impurities change in the ice. And you get into kind of, this is, so I can get excited just about this because this is into the details. You know, you can look at things like nitrate in the ice and how that's changed. And it definitely changes. Um, and it... Is very easy to measure so that's just one example there's tons of nitrate data but how you interpret it is quite um, complicated and in the, the sort of the, the idea you know the mantra if you like was you can't explain the atmosphere in the past if you can't if you don't know anything about the atmosphere today so and we didn't know anything about well we knew very little about the atmosphere over Antarctica at that time and I went to the German Antarctic Research Station a couple of times and did some work because they had a really nice facility there. And again, it was, a, you know, fantastic people to work with, great collaboration, really, really nice. We worked and we had two seasons making measurements of nitrogen chemistry to understand nitrate, which I just mentioned. And but it sort of became clear that if we wanted to do anything, we really, you know, if we wanted to build this, it's much kind of easier and it's quite helpful to have your own facilities. So we bid for money and we got um, a certain amount of money to build a laboratory. Um, so that was specific to look at um, the chemical composition of the atmosphere and how originally it was, we slightly changed our definition, but to begin with it was to look at, you know, the the chemistry of the atmosphere, what's going on mm -hmm. in, the, in the atmosphere. Um, and that was built over a couple of years and it went to Antarctica in 2003. And we then ran a really big measurement campaign there involving lots of UK groups. And we met, we just sort of threw the kitchen sink at it. And we said, mm -hmm. you know, 
let's just let's just measure everything you know let's measure what we can so these instruments outside of the base or attached to the base uh, um, a mixture they were inside our laboratory okay um so you're taking samples and bringing this bringing the air bringing the samples in. into the laboratory yeah. and then okay right yeah gotcha. exactly okay. yeah exactly <laughs> so <clears throat> you had special inlet which would bring in really so bringing in um exactly so what you want so the instruments all had to be inside because they had to be at room temperature. Right. Okay. They need to be warm. And, but they need to measure the air. And so you need a way of getting the air to the instrument. And so one way you can do that is just have a big, big fan, big blower, and a, and a pipe, effectively a chimney, and you suck your air in mm. really, really oh, yeah, fast. Okay. You just bring it in really fast. Change the pressure well, to, to the outside. Yeah. Well, you yeah. just... It's more about a residence time, actually. You just want to keep the air flowing really fast through this this chimney, mm. and then you suck, you tap off from that chimney, and you just suck air from that. So it, what it means is that all of these instruments are basically measuring the same air because it moves very quickly between them. So you're yeah. measuring the same kind of air. Right. You can call them channels, right? You take down different measurement channels. You, know, you take the air down different pathways. Yes. Send them different instruments. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then you can sort of, you, you got a way of really cross comparing the measurements you make with your different instruments. And there was one that was up on the roof. That was a spectroscopic instrument. And we had one that was looking um, it was also a spectroscopic instrument, so it looked at um, absorption of light in the atmosphere, and it sent a light beam four kilometres out across the ice shelf to a big, what's called a retro reflector, but that's just a, another way. Of, effectively, it was a mirror, yeah. but it was using prisms, and it sent the light back again. So you had oh. this eight-kilometre path length, yeah. and um, you could measure the changes in the light. You knew what went out, you measured what came back, and that told you the concentration of certain gases in, in the atmosphere. I look surprised because it's on, the whole thing is on an ice shelf. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so that's moving all the time. Yes. Don't you need very precise, don't you need very precise alignment for that laser to um, bounce and come back in the right way? Or? Yes, you would, <clears throat> except it used what's called this retroreflector, mm. and that is a very clever thing so even if you're slightly off with your alignment it comes back to you hmm. <coughs> it has um what are they called um i can't remember what the name of it is does it have to just do with the shape of the mirror or it, because it's not a mirror so i i, I mm. called it a mirror just because that's easier kind of conceptually but it's a number of these prisms okay and each one is like an internal reflector mm. so each one will send it back the way that it came in so if it's going straight ahead, oh. it'll send it straight back. If it's off to the side, it's from for the point of view of that prism, it's going in there and it'll come straight back. Okay. So precisely to account for changes in alignment, you have you have that, and so mm. you always get your signal coming back. The ice is always moving, yeah. Yes. So you need a system where it doesn't have to be perfectly lined exactly. up. You know, like LIGO, like the <coughs> gravity wave, you know, interferometer. Those yeah. have to be. Perfect, 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 yes. and they can't move. You yes, know, yeah. That, uh, but this, there's flexibility built into yeah, the absolutely. how it's how that laser is sent back. Okay, so then yeah. you can look at the laser light and see, yes. I guess, what wavelengths are missing and yes. what, what has been absorbed. Yeah. So then, you can relate that to the chemical composition of the atmosphere exactly. because you know how different chemical compounds absorb different wavelengths of light. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Spot on. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the big challenges was that with that was that. Um, 
if it cover if it gets covered in snow or ice if it gets you know ice depositing onto it then you lose it doesn't work so you had to heat it so you had to have this long power cable going oh, right. out to heat this thing so it was you know there were lots of things that had to be four kilometer figured long out cable yeah well it came up from the main station but it was it was huge and laying it you know incredibly complicated so so that was good so so we made our measurements there and um we found out all sorts of things about how the atmosphere works. And uh, we've learned that the snow is a really important um, source, if you like, of trace gases to the atmosphere. So there are these long-lived compounds in the snow. You have things that we go back to nitrate again. So you have nit nitrate is NO3 minus and, and nitrate molecules, you know, whether it's I don't know, sodium nitrate or nitric acid or whatever is sitting in the snow. And when the light shines on it, the sunlight shines on it, it'll break down the molecules mm. and you go through this kind of chemistry in the in the this in the sort of the pseudo-liquid layer around the ice. Oh, and wow. and you release these things back into the atmosphere. So you have things like nitrogen oxides, ni nitrogen oxide, NO and NO2, nitrogen dioxide, going into the atmosphere mm. from the snow. And, and that was a kind of, oh my goodness, you know, we weren't expecting that to happen. I hadn't thought about that before. No. Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> and, it, and it is really interesting because this is the only way that you will produce um, ozone at ground level is by the photolysis, you know, the splitting apart of this NO2 nitrogen dioxide. So it, it you know, it slightly affects your, your ozone budgets. Um, and we found also that... Um, chemistry of snow and salt from the sea ice zone so Halley is on the coast yeah and it's, it's lovely because you know the Antarctic atmosphere one of the reasons that we study there is it is so clean so you don't have anything else affecting what you're looking at um, so we find that the snow will release chemicals into the atmosphere the salt from the sea ice zone will put chemicals into the atmosphere as well and so you start looking at this really kind of bizarre chemical um, regime and the sea ice zone will release bromine compounds into the atmosphere and they will destroy ozone at ground level so you see mm. signals in your ozone at ground level um, and it affects we've just done a, finished a study showing how the, it affects the balance of other chemicals HOCs so OH radicals which are very very reactive um, and they are sometimes referred to as you know the vacuum cleaner of the atmosphere, whatever. But they, hmm. so they 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 react with pollutants and things, and that's not an issue for the Antarctic. But if you're thinking about the Arctic, so that almost brings us full circle back to Siena. If you're thinking about the Arctic, you do want to understand what's happening in in the atmosphere. And so what we found is that the the sea ice is a source of these chemicals to the atmosphere, and that affects some of these more reactive gases which can potentially destroy pollutants. So we looked at it in the Antarctic, but the same is going to apply in the Arctic. And if you're losing your sea ice, you lose the source of these more reactive gases. Right. And if you're increasing industry in the north, you actually have, a, you know, this is, this is very kind of embryonic thinking, if you like, because we've only just completed this paper, but it looks as though losing sea ice will affect the chemistry in the atmosphere and it would reduce the ability of the atmosphere to cleanse itself. So, you know, it's wow. just another kind of pressure on the atmosphere, which, huh. and it's, it's, you know, and it's sort of, um, it was an interesting 
a sort of little spark moment when we, we saw the link between the emissions from the sea ice and the effect it has on this. And then you think, oh my goodness, you know, if you you can you can take the knowledge, you can take what we've learned in the Antarctic, and you think, well, if we were in a situation where the atmosphere is changing because there's less sea ice and you have more industry from whatever, you know, from shipping or, or whatever, then you might have a you know an, an extra effect which you need to take into account. Wow. Yeah, so the, the ice, I don't know, like I said, I hadn't thought about that before, the, yeah. the sea ice and snow yes. as a source and sink yes. of you know, these chemical yeah. compounds which can then change the composition of the atmosphere, yeah. which changes how the atmosphere is able to respond to pollutants. Yes. And it also has an impact on climate because it can impact aerosol formation yes. and yes. <laughs> aerosol distribution. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a coupling between yeah. climate change and pollution distribution yeah. and well different feedback mechanisms yeah. of amplifying or yeah. suppressing climate change absolutely that's really cool yeah it's because a, the, the, so the, the the solid you know the ice and the snow they, it acts like a sort of a processor huh. but actually what you've just you know how you've just articulated it is 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 great because it is um you know one thing that we've learned over the last you know the years that i've been working this anyway is just how interconnected everything is <laughs> you know mm -hmm. we used to um think, you know, we thought we were doing quite well when the chemists would talk to the meteorologists, you know, mm. oh, that was, that was real progress, you know, <laughs> but it's so obvious that it's so, so interconnected and, you know, you, you can't, to study the really, to get the really detailed processes, if you want to put them into a model, then you do need to look, you know, really at the fine scale and you obviously you need to look at the fine scale, but the, the system itself is phenomenally interconnected. Yeah. Changes in sea ice change, you know, changes in ozone affects, you know, southern ocean winds, which affects sea ice, which affects, you know, on and on and on and on. So it is incredibly. And we're both smiling right now because we have our, our scientist hats on. And that, <laughs> and, that, and that connection is a fascinating, you know, yeah. causal chain. Yes. That um, is just fun to think about. Yeah. <laughs> but then if we put our... Um, private citizen or yeah, thinking yeah. about our kids and grandkids hats on yeah, we might yeah. go oh yeah actually, yeah yeah <laughs> it's not great but no you're right mm -hmm. that, like understanding that full mechanism you've got you've got to do it if you want to understand you know climate and climate yeah. change yeah um yeah well, that's that's really good so that's a uh, really a really good description uh, what i mean by really good is that's a really good description of that lab so yeah. so it's um so that's now was it on the previous Halley as well because yes. there's, there's this Halley is the name of, you know, one of the British Antarctic Survey, you know, Antarctic bases on mm. the ice. It's on the ice um, shelf. Yes. I always, even though I know the difference, I, know. I always, I always, well, I often say ice shelf when I mean ice sheet I, and ice sheet when I mean ice shelf. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you do that as well because shelf and sheet, you know, yeah. SA, you shouldn't have two words no. starting with the same three letters that do quite different jobs. No. You're yeah. too close. Yes. It's okay. I talked to um, a nature editor on the last episode and he, he does the same thing, even though that's like the area, one of the areas that he's doing a lot oh, of editing excellent. in. He's like, just when you're talking, sometimes the yeah. wrong word comes yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, it's yeah. really easy for Absolutely. that to happen. Yes. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> I was saying that um, Halley on the, the ice right so the, there's different generations of yeah. Halley of that Antarctic base mm. so then at some point you had to move that lab yes. from the old Halley yes. to the new yes. Halley the new Halley which looks like sort of an alien you know construction it's these modular pods yeah. that are on skis that can be moved from one location to the other yes. and I imagine um so there probably was a gap in the in your data yeah. as you moved from one yeah. you know platform to the other, from one station is. to the yeah. other. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, but it's um, were you affected very much by the the move? I guess you have oh, to yes. calibrate for that sort of thing because they had to move the entire alley base from yeah. one location to the other because they noticed a big developing crack, yes. you know, in the ice. Yeah. So that changes the baseline basically for you because you're now oh we're now in a different location. Yeah. Mm. Actually, for our stuff that hasn't. Okay. That's not too bad. Well, okay. I'm just thinking how how best to address that. So, <clears throat> from there was a move from. The fifth Halley station, Halley 5, to mm -hmm. the sixth station, that was when we went from um, a station which was on legs, it was basically shipping containers on platforms on yeah. stain, on, on steel yeah. structures. It didn't look as cool as the it one didn't. we now. It didn't. It didn't. And then it moved to Halley 6 with this very cool one. Um, and then we've actually had to move it again because of the crack. So it's, right. it's now at Halley 6A. So we do have quite big gaps in our data. Um, to correct for that way or adjust for that Well, noise. some of the things are we're not only looking at trends, we're looking at processes. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at processes, it's much less of an issue. Mm. Um, I see, because you can look at how the different... Well, things you're measuring are connected to each other in that particular instance. Yeah. In a way, it's kind of nice to have measured that in different locations. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, but I mean, if we're looking at emissions of nitrogen oxides from snow, for example, you measure the, the nitrate concentration in the snow, you measure what's coming into the atmosphere, and the connection is between those two things. And if you look in one place, then the nitrate concentration is slightly different somewhere else. You know, you just set up a different kind of relationship between those two. But actually, our our stuff um, is not too sensitive to um, where we're measuring. Things that would be affected is things like. Um, so what what we were talking about a moment ago was the the salinity, the salt that you get from the ocean and from the sea ice. And if you um, that if if that how can I put this. If you're right next to the sea ice, it's going to be more salty than it is inland. So how far mm -hmm. inland you go, will you know? There's likely to be some change in the amount of salinity you get in the in the snow. So that might affect your um, your measurements of of halogen compounds, for example. It hasn't been a problem for us yet um, okay. because we are more looking at these kind of processes. Yeah. And um, hmm. yeah, and the moves, you know, the moves between the different stations has caused um, quite large gaps in our data. And at the moment, Halley is not running during the winter right, anyway. yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, it is. So we are working sort of summer only and auto you know, automating instruments. So we're sort of in a build-up phase again to yeah. try and get that sorted. It's been a bit of a challenge. A bit so, yeah. That's one of the ongoing <laughs> things that is maybe possibly, I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm. but that might be the possibly less fun part of, of yes. your job is dealing with that sort of long-term, or that, that kind of logistical yeah. issue. It's, I mean, it's, it's you know, obviously it's, you know, the way people work is, you know, this is a nuisance, never mind is what we have to do and we just get on yeah, with yeah. it and do it. Yeah. But it, it's a bit of a shame, you know, when I look. I actually have, um, I've kept a record of when our lab was open and when it was not open. Mm. Because I've, you know, actually I've been waiting for the day when somebody will come to me and say, you know, what results have you got from your lab, you know? And then I want to be able to demonstrate, mm. partly because my memory is so bad nowadays. I want to be able to demonstrate this is the history of our lab, 
And to begin with, everything is green. We had the lab running, it was fantastic. We had really good measurements. And then it was closed for a number of years during the move. And then it was closed because of the, there was a power cut in 2014. Oh, right. And then there was, um, it had to be moved again. And then it takes time, the station had to be moved again. And then that takes time for the lab to be re-established. So we, we've, um, we have some quite big gaps both in our data, but also in our momentum. Mm, right, and yeah. what, what I had been building up, and it, actually it explains why I'm involved in so many different projects, I've, I've, <clears throat> I've been putting a lot of effort into building up collaborations with people to work at Halley, because we have, and actually goes back to what I was saying before about local knowledge, we understand the Antarctic system really, really mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, other people understand their instruments really well. So if they can come with their instruments to our location, we can work together. They can tell us what their instruments are telling them, and we can <clears throat> we can tell them a lot why. You know, we can explain the context and the background and how things change, because we understand the system. So I've been working with people, and I had collaborations set up. I had people who wanted to come to Halley, and then we had to move the station. Mm -hmm. So all of those collaborations, you know, go on hold. Um, and in the meantime, if we don't have access to our lab, we have to do other things. So I got involved in lots of different oh, projects right, yeah. in lots of different places hmm. because we've not been able to access our lab. So it's kind of slightly responsive. And now we, you know, we do have access to the lab and we will, you know, try and build up some of that work again, but it takes a lot of time hmm. because of the... The shipping deadlines, you know, it, it and instruments are away for years. Yeah, you yeah, know, so it, right. it's um, it's quite a, a big. It's not that you can't respond quickly. Yeah. There's a very long planning schedule to this, yeah, and yeah. and what I was saying before, you know, I, I see that it's a shame. You know, we we did have a lot of things set up when we could have made really big, um, you know, good steps and good progress, but you know, then the ice shelf decided to you know misbehave and there's nothing we can do about it you yeah. know so then we just have to respond as best we can and pick things up when we're able to it also reminds me of advice i got from my uh one of my advisors a long time ago he said that he liked to he likes to keep a portfolio of projects uh -huh. at different risk levels yes you know, there's like well yeah. this is low risk yeah maybe relatively low impact but i know i'm gonna get something out of it yes and then i have a high risk higher impact kind yes of. so that that's part of his strategy okay. for you know keeping that the portfolio and it yeah. sounds like you're doing a similar yeah. thing yeah. where you know and i'm not calling any of these you know lower no, high no, 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 risk no. or priority yeah, yeah, but i'm yeah. just saying if you have a spread yes. of things that you're involved with yes. it can help yes. but then that goes back to our very first point of yeah. you don't want to spread yourself so thin that you're working yeah. you know 6 yes. a.m to 11 yes. p.m every yes day. absolutely yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's a tricky a tricky balance to yeah. achieve and yeah. that balancing act and optimization process kind of never stops yes <laughs> just kind of i also look for <clears throat> no it's true i look for maximizing efficiency so there are two projects on there um, the Sonata project which you mentioned so one is looking at carbon dioxide one is looking at methane but they both use the same instrument hmm. so if I can keep oh, yeah, one yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> if I can keep one instrument running at three different locations <laughs> I've got data for two different projects yeah, you so go. you know there's we you know we look to yeah. maximize and, and from our side you know we're getting the measurements anyway and we want the data to be used so that's 
that's a that's yeah. kind of a, another win-win. I hope you don't mind if I switch gears. I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, we usually talk a little bit about um, kind of people's pathway, you know, into science. Like, right. where'd you grow up, and you know, okay. how did you find yourself, you know, here uh, in this room at <laughs> 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 Bass? Yeah. yeah. We, and we can start wherever you like, but uh, you know, where where'd you grow up is a sometimes a reasonable place to to start. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, I grew up. Um, my best growing up was in Northumberland. Yeah. Um, we went there when I was ten, and I kind of discovered the countryside by going for long walks in the countryside with the dog, hmm. you know, and learned to love the countryside and you know the wider environment. And I went to Canada. I don't know. Are you from the states or Canada? Yeah, states. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. So I spent a year in Canada when I left school. I went to be an au pair. And I was based on a university campus. Okay. And it was really great. Um, I worked for um, the master of one of the colleges, and you know he had a couple of kids, and so I looked after the kids. But uh, they also encouraged me to join in, and there were lots of students. And there was a new thing started, which was the international. It was Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, and they had an international program. Um, which was full of international students and so I could go and you know do things and there were lots of activities for these international students so they took them off on you know canoe trips into the backwoods and went camping and there were all these wow kind of experiences of um, you know skiing on frozen lakes and canoeing on the same lakes you know and and so it was just a real kind of lovely thing and they had this environment program as well which I you know I really it was a fantastic opportunity to start thinking. You know, you go to school, and it's only when I was at school, you learned lots of facts and you didn't really learn to think very much. Mm-hmm. But going away, you know, and surround, I think it's, it's, it's always this, you know, you leave home and you have these, everybody grows phenomenally exponentially in the years that they go away. But, you know, lots of interesting talks and debates and, you know, new experiences. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have to leave the Shire to. Have, you do. You do. <laughs> have your adventure. You, do. you have to yeah. realise that the world's quite a big place. Yeah. Um, and that really got me keen to do environmental work. So actually, then I went to University of East Anglia and I enrolled on the environmental sciences course. But I wasn't very clear on what direction, mm-hmm. and I realised that at the end of my first year, I had to make choices about my next years. And I was going to be all over the place. I was going to be doing a little bit of um, a little bit of ecology and a little bit of marine biology yeah. and a little bit of atmosphere. And what I did while I was there, because um, I was quite strategic in my thinking, and I looked at my lecturers and I thought, well, what's their background? You know, mm-hmm. oh, they've done a physics degree. Mm-hmm. Oh, they've done a chemistry degree. You yeah. know, oh, yeah. they've they've got quite a lot of kind of foundation. And I talked with some of the lecturers and said, you know, what do you think? And da da da. And I ended up redoing my first year at UEA, oh, okay. and I did a chemistry degree. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That- I I I'm, I hear what you're saying, and I don't yeah. want to absolutely don't want to disparage any environmental Not programs. At all. But no. I think there is something to, you know, if one wants to go the environmental route, it can work out really nicely yes. to start with a basic discipline, you know, physics absolutely. and chemistry, biology, yeah. if that's the direction you want yeah. to go. No, definitely, yeah. yeah. 
Equally, I know people who were on... So it, it, was, it was more of a reflection on me that I didn't know what I wanted. Mm. So that's why I was, I was spreading very yeah. thin. And other people I know who were on that course who did know what they wanted came out and they're now, you know, direct, you know director of yeah. the Cheshire Wildlife Trust, you know, whatever. So they're, they're doing, you know, they've, they've, they've built their career. That's right. So it was really kind of my thing. And, and chemistry was something that you know it was actually through a conversation with somebody who was doing a chemistry degree and I just thought god I've never thought about that hmm. so I ended up doing that yeah that was my experience too because I did physics from a similar sort of feeling of like well I know broadly right. a yeah. science something sounds good yes. but I don't know what let me just pick one of the broadest yes. <laughs> you know sciences and see yeah. and I thought it looked challenging and interesting and yes. I thought it would probably push me you know it didn't oh, do better. new directions yeah. and, and I'm sure you you know yeah. I, I imagine that was part of your thought process as yeah. well it looked exciting but it also looked challenging and like it yeah. would it would engage you yeah, yeah. That, that's a good point about we need those different options for people who maybe want broad training because they're not totally sure what direction they want to go mm. which is super common you know yeah. I mean most of the folks I've talked with you know on here and just in life as well yeah. their kind of pathway it's very much a function of interest and opportunity yes oh and, completely you know, yeah and yeah. they don't necessarily pick something specific early yeah. on yeah you know, very few of us are like arrows that have a you know oh I want to go this way yes you know, that's not very common no which is it's, it's fine if you are yeah. that way yeah no absolutely I, I sometimes in, in the past I've envied those <laughs> I know. a little bit yeah I, and you yeah. do hear about them when yeah. I was six I decided what I wanted to be <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it doesn't seem to be super common though. It seems no. to be, I think, although I wonder sometimes if there's a tendency for us to make up those stories a little bit after our life has, yeah. <laughs> has gone yeah. a certain pathway. Yeah. Uh, I'm not pointing any specific fingers there, but I, I think we do like to make stories about our path, but often they are messy, right? Often they oh, have you know, lots of yeah. twists and turns. Yes. And, oh, I didn't know I was going to go this way, yeah. but I ended up going this way yeah. because of these events. And, yeah. and yeah. also what you said as well about you know serendipity, there's a mm. lot of luck as well you know, chance conversations, you know, who you talk to and who influences you in that way, but also opportunities that come up, which might be there just at the time that you want them. Yeah. Um, That's right. So, so after UEA, yeah. what did you do after so, that? So you got your chemistry degree at UEA. So I got my chemistry yeah. degree and then, and then, um, and then what did I do? Then I wasn't, <laughs> once again, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I, want, I knew I wanted to go on holiday that summer and I had applied for jobs but I was given an interview while I was on holiday and I thought oh if it's that easy to get an interview I'll go on holiday and then I'll get my job when I come back <laughs> as you do when you were young and naive um, might be different economic circumstances <laughs> these days possibly. but you know what it, it, at those yeah and it, perhaps it's worth saying, you know, I, I had a full grant, you know, mm. circumstances at home. We hadn't got much money, so mm-hmm. I, I all my everything was paid, so I didn't come out with debt. I had no yeah. debt at yeah. all. Um, so, again, that's very different to what people are doing nowadays. Um, but I found myself in Norwich with, um, with not so many jobs being advertised and, you know, having a year, what do I do? I ended up going to work at UEA actually. Uh, I kind of knocked on the door and I said, I'm, I'm going absolutely mad. Can I volunteer for something? And they found me some bits of stuff. And actually, some of it's been really good <clears throat> because I ended up, one of the things that I did, uh, I worked on a blowing snow project in the Cairngorms. Hmm. And we now are doing, so this is, you know, we, went, we were up a mountain 
under, you know, making measurements of how snow moves around on the plateau, you know, and uh, yeah. taking samples of chemistry, uh, you know, mm. samples of snow at different places to see how the chemistry changes. And we're actually doing that now in my professional career, oh, you know, fantastic. 35 years later. Yeah. yeah. It just happened to come back around. It yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, yeah. that was quite funny. Um, but anyway, that year I just got my act together and applied for PhDs because I thought that was, you know, I love being back at UEA and I love the research. So that to me was quite an obvious thing to do. That gave you a clear signal of like, yes. okay, I should try this research. Thing. Absolutely, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I actually think it's also a confidence thing though, you know, I never thought that a PhD was something which I could even think about. Mm. Um, but then again, when you have the right conversations with people, you think, oh, okay, so maybe I could apply, you know, oh my goodness, you know, I was offered one at Cambridge. Hmm. So I came and I did um, a computer modelling PhD actually with John Pyle, who was right, okay. a shell supervisor, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and that was looking at the effect of supersonic aircraft on the ozone layer. I didn't realise, but I, I don't, I sometimes don't love this description, but it is kind of helpful. I didn't, I didn't realise that uh, you were academic siblings. <laughs> No, I know, absolutely. I've got loads of academic siblings. Yeah, I mean, do. people at Bath Scott Hosking, yeah. he's one as well. Uh-huh. Uh, he was also supervised by John. So, this, and, you know, John Pilers, you know, has had such an incredible influence on, you know, the, the atmospheric science community. Yeah. He, he has supervised so many people who've gone out into, you know, positions in, in academia. Multiple so. generations. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't quite yeah. know how you describe it, but... Yeah, yeah, so Michelle and I had this, we didn't overlap, but yeah. but lots of people really, you know, John had super people in his group, and I'm still in touch with quite a lot of them actually, which is which is great. So I did my PhD with John, and then in my third year, there was a, a piece of paper was stuck up on the notice board in our, in our room, and it was um, a, a job opportunity at Bass. Nice. <laughs> and... Um, Joe Farman was retiring. They wanted to get someone in mm. to do some chemistry, and I applied and I got it. Yeah. And that that is my bit of luck, you know, because that, mm-hmm. that was unbelievably lucky. And I came in on a four year contract, and yeah. You've been you're you're still here. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm here for luck too. Basically, uh, people ask me sometimes like, oh, why did you move here? So, well, yeah. I don't know. I applied for a job, and yes. I, I somehow I wasn't expecting to get it. Yes, I got it. Much yes. to my surprise. Yes, I still remember opening the email at my desk. It was a December morning, and I was really, I was really excited and pleased yes. to see it. Yes, and then we quickly went, oh, okay, let's figure out how to move to <laughs> to England now. Right. Yes, <laughs> and that all worked out. But, um, but yeah, there's absolutely an element of of luck because yeah. oh, who knows? A different person could have applied, and they could absolutely. have you know been a, been a better fit for whatever yeah. reason. And yeah. um, there there is a, a real. It's great you've been able to stay I mean I don't know how you feel about it but it's great you've been able to stay you know in in Cambridge you know for a long time it's um I think that kind of stability is really good and it's Mm -hmm. been and I imagine it's been good for in terms of family development and you know having your kids go to the same place and sometimes that's good (laughs) I guess that's good yeah Uh, I could sometimes well certainly as kids kind of develop their friendships and things it's nice for them to be able to sustain those over a few Mm -hmm. few years yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. that's really good yeah. Cambridge is a, a a good town to try to get that to work, isn't it? Like you, you probably can find strings of science jobs here and there. I don't want to overgeneralize, but yeah. as towns go, yeah. it is a we are privileged to be in a town where you know you you might be able to string together things. I'm not yeah. saying that was your case, but yeah. I'm saying like yeah, 
Uh, I'm just rambling now. <laughs> ignore me. Yeah, no, but I mean, I mean, the other thing with Bass, though, is the, the, you know, the job here has been fantastic. And, you know, obviously, you, you kind of go through stages at probably mid-career where you think, you know, should I, should I be doing something else and should I be going somewhere else? You know, and then I looked around and to, to see, and there were jobs coming up. And I, you know, and I just thought, well, actually, I like my job better. Yeah. You know, yeah. I really like what I'm doing, and it's a it's a great place to work, and we have you know phenomenal opportunities. And um, this is something this brings up um, something Ed Hawkins brought up on, mm. on Twitter the other day. He said that um, in fellowship applications, uh, that when he's in charge of like you know the panel. Yeah. He says, we absolutely should not penalize anyone if they want to write a fellowship to stay at the same institute. Right. You know, we should, especially yeah. if they mention this is the right place for the fellowship. Yes. You know, you still need to be able to make the good, the right case, the strong yes. case that yes. your institute is the right place for a yes. fellowship. But he said it absolutely is okay, or at least yeah. it was when he was in charge, um, to say in your case for support. Yeah. Oh, in addition to this being the right place, yeah. I also want to stay here for family reasons. You know, oh, that's my, interesting. You know, my yeah. my partner works yes. in the same area and yeah. the, the same city, you know, yeah. the same region. And my I have kids in school, and I don't want to move them around. Yeah. You know, for for no reason. You know, that's but, interesting. Yeah, so I, I think I guess that might change a little bit depending on who's running your panel. But it was yeah. really encouraging to see some senior scientists yes. say that uh, with, when they're evaluating yeah. proposals, they they do. They, they don't dismiss that line of reasoning. They let you, they, right. It's okay to say, yeah, I want to stay because of my life, yeah. which gets back to that work-life balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. I was, I was going to say there was, um, there was somebody here who was applying for a fellowship um, uh, recently, and she applied, and everything was looking good. And then she got an email, a slightly strange one, asking why, because she was based at Bass and she wanted to stay in Cambridge mm -hmm. and they were basically asking are there personal reasons why you want to stay and it was almost oh, sounded right. as though they wanted to kind of dig in and find out you know what are you why do you really want to stay oh, so that was really interesting but but we answered and so we spoke about it and um you know completely you know frank why why you know what is the draw and actually the bottom line was she wanted to stay living in Cambridge, she did have family here, but even if you've got family here, it doesn't mean you've got to work in Cambridge, mm -hmm. you could work in London, yeah. you can commute, you could work at UEA, mm -hmm. there are places around where you can do, you can set things up, you know, there are, you know, Birmingham would almost be an option, Cranfield, there are people, there are places around where you, you could work, so Cambridge wasn't the only place but it was the best place for her right. scientifically. Yes. And so you yeah. could, you know, and that's how she addressed it. You know, you put in this big package, you know, yes, I've got personal reasons for staying, but that is only part of it. And, you know, putting those on one side, I could work in all sorts of places, but it, but I actually, I want to stay, hmm. you know, working because of the science context in Cambridge. So yeah. Definitely. We're, uh, well, we're privileged in that way too. Yeah, oh, This yeah. part of England is really yeah. dense in terms of, it's researcher dense. And yes. It's, I know people love to complain about the train system, but it exists and it works more or less. And yeah. it's uh, pretty good, yes. actually. Yes. It's too expensive probably, but it does work. Yeah. Um, but do you mind if we 
uh, I don't want to cut us off if there's anything else you want to talk about, but no, uh, coming up on lunchtime. Oh, well. yeah, great. So I like to um, usually like to finish with this lightning round. And what I mean by lightning round is I try to be fast in how quickly I ask the questions. Oh, gosh. Um, and then you can take as long as you like, you know, <laughs> okay. and um, to answer the questions. But mm-hmm. so I'll just go through them yeah. and uh, see what you say. So what's, um, they're all questions of the format. You know, what's something you've learned about X? Okay. So, it's, uh, so what's something you've learned about science? <laughs> that That's it matters. Uh, it matters. Yeah, it matters. <laughs> but it's really important. It's really fun. It's really exciting. But it's really important. Nice. I like that. Was something you learned about navigating? You could call it academia or like research culture, or you know, institutes navigating that kind of. Because that, that's yeah, that's part of being a scientist. But it's yeah. not the science part of it exactly. Yeah. Oh, navigating. Um, you have to learn to work well with people. I think people like to collaborate with people who they like, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, you should work well with people. Um, the networking part is critical. Networking is really important, yes. Yeah, but it's a nice part of it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I found, I don't know if every field is this way. I get the impression that maybe not, mm-hmm. but like earth, ocean, atmospheric sciences, mm-hmm. for the most part, I know there are exceptions to this, but yeah. I think for the most part, we're all on the same team. Yeah. We're pretty collegial. Yes. We, we help each other. Yes. We're, we're doing the same thing together. You know, yes. we're collaboratively. You, you can find exceptions, but I think yeah. by and large, we're pretty friendly yeah. bunch and we, we work well together. We're not out to, you know, cut each other off at the knees. We're not right. looking to sabotage each other. Um, so that, uh, that might not be the same. I think we're lucky in that way too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something you learned about, uh, field work. Oh, it's great fun. <laughs> mm, <yeah. laughs> um, I learned that Antarctica is not as cold as I thought it was going to okay, be. Yeah. Uh, that when I arrived on the first time, I was helicoptered in to the German station and I had all my gear with, you know, yeah. all my heavy stuff and my big boots and I was met by um, the station leader wearing jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as heroic. I mean, the winter it's different, but certainly when I was there, it was... Yeah. It was okay. Yeah, I've only been on the ship one time, but I kind of remember going out on deck anyway and, you know, we're we're south of the... You know, yeah. we're south of 60 South yeah. and I'm standing outside and, well, okay, I did have stuff on, but I, my regular jacket was okay. <laughs> it was yes. fine. It wasn't yeah. as cold as I, yeah. like you said, it wasn't winter, but yeah. you know, it, it wasn't as bad as I, as yeah. you might think. Yeah. I also mm. think it's really good for modelers because when I went, I was mainly doing theoretical work. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. And if you actually go there, it makes such a difference to your whole understanding of the system and the environment it, you yeah. know it's just a reality isn't it you know you, you start living in the real world and not the model world and you know it's really helpful for you know to, to yeah. bridge those every spatial scale is really there yeah and yes. every process is yeah. really there yeah <laughs> and they all they all can matter potentially yeah. how about writing what's something you learned about writing do you, do you enjoy it i do you i like love writing, writing actually mm. yeah um i used to read lots of books though i was a big reader when i was young yeah. and i love it i love crafting sentences and mm. the power of words and so i do like writing yes that's helpful in your job. Yes. <laughs> line of work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can be you can be a perfectly successful great scientist uh, who hates writing there and I've oh, talked no, to absolutely. them. I've talked to them, yes. you know. Yeah. It makes that part of your job harder, but yes. you know, it's uh but I it, it's and it's a, a skill you have to have, but it sure helps when you love it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 I like organizing thoughts and mm-hmm. But I think it also if I can just raise one other thing, um it also 
you're absolutely right. In fact, there are some, you know, there are some really fantastic scientists that find writing really, really difficult. And I always think that we, we definitely, you know, we need, we all have different strengths. You know, I'm not strong, well, not strong technically, because I've never learned the technical stuff. Um, but I'm very good at organising things. I'm good at writing. I'm good at, you know, logical sentences and, and structure and things like that. And I, I think we all bring our strengths to our teams and we should all be rewarded for those strengths. So we should play to our strengths, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, mm. if you're fantastic, technically brilliant, you know, go and do your technical stuff, mm. you know, and we need to work together, you know, not just sort of into even, you know, wherever you work, you need to play to your strengths. So I think that's, that's something that's something else which I've learned in the sense which I, I work to um, enable people to be rewarded for whatever their strengths are. That's great. And it's important to try to offer, if you're on the side of you know, trying to get the funding for different jobs and different roles, mm. it's important to offer a spread of different roles as well, you know, yeah, the technical yeah. ones, scientific ones, yes, yeah, logistic ones. Yeah, absolutely, because you need all of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That community element of science again, the collaborative, yes. you know, person-driven element yes. of science is yeah. there again. Uh, that's part of the one of the reasons I like doing this podcast is mm. it kind of helps me combat this not combat that's too strong of a word but it helps me um, clash with sometimes people have this idea of scientists as you know alone isolated up on a hill somewhere yeah. and it's just them in their lab or something but mm. and uh, I don't know maybe there was an era when that happened but yeah. um, you know your Cavendishes and your you know reclusive yes. you know geniuses yeah. but. Uh, really, by and large, uh, that's the second time I've used that phrase in this podcast. <laughs> Largely, I think, you mm. know, science these days certainly is very collaborative and very person-driven, and you need yeah. everyone. Yeah. You need many different personality types and, yeah. and skill sets. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What about what, what about mentoring? What's something you've learned about mentoring and supervising students or, yeah. or mentoring other kind of um, colleagues and... What have I learned about mentoring? Oh gosh, quick question, quick answer. Um, I have mentored quite a few people. Mm -hmm. um, I like mentoring people. I think it's really important. Um, I think one thing I find is quite interesting actually, even in places like Cambridge, it's amazing how people, you know, you sort of think everybody in Cambridge is super clever and, you know, they're up there on their pedestal and, <laughs> and you find how many people are actually thinking, oh, everybody else is really clever, you know, so there's yeah. a lot of insecurities among, you know, people in Cambridge as well. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's all quite, that's quite kind of amusing. Um, I'm not sure if that really answers the question, things I've learned about mentoring. Well, you've learned how common the imposter syndrome is and, and that informs how you mentor people. Yes. Because I think if you're aware of that, it lets you know how important encouragement can be. Well, I think Even that, just simple yeah, encouragement. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's right, you know. And, and I actually, I go back again to all these different, and I've always, I mean, it's just where, you know, it's just what sort of drives me. I think everybody has... Um, Everybody's got something to give, you know, and um, we need we need the input and the efforts from all sorts of different people, you know, whatever their skills, you know. So, I mean, I guess that's maybe that sort of answers the question. Yeah, it does, and that, they, that ties together nicely with the discussion about learning about science and learning how it, how it operates. And yeah, I think that ties things together very nicely mm. you need everyone so let's invite everyone to the party yeah. to the extent possible yeah and make them feel included you know, as well yeah make people feel included i know there are funding constraints and kind of real world constraints yeah. and you know in a in a if that wasn't a problem i know that's a real issue a real constraint in terms mm. of 
but lowering the barriers to participation is a good goal or yes. a good ambition to have. Mm-hmm. And part of lowering those barriers is sometimes just encouraging people and yes. sometimes just saying, yeah, you can, you can do yeah. it. Come yes. on, give it a try. Yeah, yeah. I know, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, how do you feel? Yeah. Exhausted. Now. Exhausted. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about? You okay? Uh, no, no, I think, I think I've certainly said enough. So. Well, thanks, Anna. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, that was, that was great fun. Oh, good. Go and get lunch now. Yeah. Well, I'm, glad, I'm, glad you, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Yes. I enjoyed it as well. Yes. There you have it, my conversation with Dr. Anna Jones from the British Antarctic Survey Tropospheric Chemistry. I hope that you enjoyed that. Like I said, I I did genuinely learn a lot from that conversation, and I'm glad that we have it recorded. I'm glad that we have it down. So about the show, if you want to follow updates, if you want to get updates about the show, follow at ClimateSciPod on Twitter. And you can also follow at Dan Jones Ocean. That's me on Twitter if you want to get updates about the show. And um, I post science stuff on there. But but yes, we are still on a monthly schedule, about one a month of these. And I'm going to continue to, to try to do that. The uh, two a month frequency was getting to be a little bit too much. I couldn't manage that in the end. So uh, at least not for very long. But one a month, I think I can manage. And I do, I do want to keep this going. I intend to keep it going as best as I can, as long as I can. We've got uh, a couple more in the in the pipe already, already recorded, ready to go, including uh, Joellen Russell. Uh, I talked with her recently, so I will be releasing that, um, I believe, next month, uh, if I can get all of that produced and squared away. But uh, we, we had a, a great conversation, so I'm really excited to share that with you. Take care. Talk to you later.